Welcome to another episode of the Franklin Faith Forum. I'm Jay Horrigan. As most of the time, Pandora Carlucci is sitting here next to me. How are you, Pandora? I'm doing fine, Jay. Thank you for asking. Good. How is your summer going? My summer is going beautifully. I had a chance to dog sit yesterday, and so I spent a lot of time outside. Life is good. That's excellent. Good for you. Good for you. Just if anybody's listening, I still have not weeded anything, and I still won't, so that has not changed. We're joined, as always, by our faith leaders here in Franklin, Rabbi Tom, Pastor Doreen, and Pastor Jacob. Thank you all for joining us, as always. This show is about your ideas, your thoughts, what you want to talk about. But we always start it by going around the room, seeing what's going on, what you have planned in the future. And let's start with Doreen this time. Thank you, Jay. (laughs) So we are recording in June for this episode to be published in August. I expect that in August, I will still be in the midst of my sermon series on building your own theology, still a more casual worship atmosphere in the dining room where it's cooler. And we look forward to the return of our musician, who's just a fabulous organist and pianist, on August 27th. He'll be joining us back. We'll be back up in the main sanctuary for worship for then. And again, I'm looking forward to my first sort of uh, rallying kickoff of the more traditional worship for the first time with Franklin Federated. Awesome. Awesome. Rabbi Tom? Well... Again, we are recording in June where it's still a little cool. By the time you hear this, it's going to be really hot, so that's good, <laughs> I hope. As to what's happening at the at Temple at Saim, so August, we continue to have lay leaders uh, leading services for several weeks. I'll be back at the end of the month. I personally am taking uh, about two and a half weeks of vacation in August, going out to the Berkshires, where I hope to be renewed, refreshed, and uh, figured out all my High Holy Day sermons. We'll see. The middle of August is the start of the month of the Hebrew month of Elul, which is the month that precedes the High Holy Days. So it is a month of preparation as we start to get ready for our 10 days of all leading uh, to our New Year's Day, Rosh Hashanah, the start of our highest holy day season and ending on uh, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. So Rosh Hashanah starts the evening of the 15th of September, and we look forward to welcoming anyone who wants to join us for services. Just let us know at the temple, and we will get you an invitation. We'll also have all our high holy day services, as we do with our weekly Shabbat services, streamed online, so that'll be available We'll have our choir, we have our cantor. It's all the high holy days are a big deal. Uh, and uh, so there will be our choir is, as you're hearing this, hard at work getting uh, their music ready. it's it's going to be special. And that's uh, where our focus is as we get ready. And of course, our in September too, our uh, religious school year begins. So uh, anybody who's listening to this wants to have their kids get a Jewish education, let us know. That's great, uh, Rabbi. Thank you so much. And Pastor Jacob. So we are continuing our summer cookouts. So the uh, those typically happen on the last Saturday of the month. For when this airs, the next few will be August 26th and September 23rd. I will say, in reference to the heat that will be most likely here in August, the Franklin United Methodist Church's sanctuary is air-conditioned. <laughs> so don't let the heat keep you away if you want to visit us. 
jealous. <laughs> I also would just say, and I don't have a specific date, but sometime around the beginning of September, this will a tradition we started last September, we will have an ice cream truck at the building for ice cream after worship. Jay, you should join us that day. Uh, it's a free ice cream Sunday as a kind of, as a, as a sort of kickoff, uh, much to what Reverend Doreen uh, alluded to, kind of the, the restart as we go back in the fall, just as a celebratory moment uh, for the church. The, the exact date of that will be put on the church Facebook page. Awesome. I like the idea of ice cream, too. <laughs> okay, you can come, Pandora. You're welcome, too. <laughs> Just thought I should put that out there. <laughs> um, this particular show is the third in a three-part segment that we began during the month of May. We continued it in our June show and now in the August show. And our overarching topic for our discussion is going to be the rituals that surround death. Last month, we talked about rituals and what they are, what they look like, how we recognize them, and and how they are present in our different faith communities, as well as in our secular day-to-day life. So today, we're going to narrow the focus, and we're going to look at rituals that surround death. And the initial conversation as we look at which rituals are typically performed at the time of death or which rituals are more specific to your particular faith practice and for whom are the rituals offered because we have all different rituals with different people included in them. And so I thought that I would start with Reverend Doreen and we have um, a basic outline of how we want to unpack this. And it begins with what rituals are typically performed at death? Or could you just speak Mm -hmm. to the rituals and those early, early days as we enter that? Yes. And as a parish minister, it's not often that I'm there at the time of passing. But certainly in my chaplaincy internship, that's a big part of it, that hospitals have spiritual nurture available. And I certainly have been at my share of bedsides at passing. And I think it. one of the things that the Christian faith affirms is that death doesn't just affect this person who's passing, but family and community in general. It's a communal situation. So I think having spiritual nurture and support at that time of passing is a good remembrance of that. And often, if a death is not sudden and is expected and someone's in the hospital or, or at home and there's a process of dying to have family come in, to have spiritual leader or someone willing at least to take that role, to offer prayers, to, uh, to lay hands on, to touch and connect with this person who's passing. If there's a lucidity, I think a chance to say whatever needs to be said, to release to release this life and move on. Our book of worship has certain ritual prayers or, or touching and, and ways of gathering the families and, and other community together. And then, again, as a parish minister, I'm more involved after death, right, where the family would contact us. Are you willing to—actually, the often the funeral home that contacts us, are you willing to do a service? And, and then I always 
meet with the family. It's such an important part of the process of getting to know them and, and just having that space for the families to share what's been important to them. And then, you know, the, yes, we have a book of worship that recommends certain prayers or, or rituals or an order of service to involve them. But I think involving the family and addressing the family's need is so paramount. So again, I'm part of a, a low ritual denomination. And I appreciate that, that I can respond to the needs in the moment. And there are still so many resources to reference. In our tradition, usually there's a service either at the funeral home or at the church itself. And then if there's there are remains to be buried, there's a, a brief, very brief, usually graveside service as well. And then there's the ritual of the, the collation after the gathering for food and sharing of memories. Uh, and so in preparation for today, I was rereading through the various rituals for in the United Methodist tradition. And I think one of the things that I was reminded of, uh, and I haven't in my career had very many opportunities to actually do this. I have much like Reverend Doreen been there clinical training at the time of death but only maybe a handful of times when someone has said perhaps died at home under hospice care been there when they passed but one of the important rituals is and most united methodists don't actually know that we have this we have in our book of worship uh, essentially a last rites prayer that we offer uh, this prayer of release and i'm not saying that i had anything to do with this but i do have a funny story Early in my career, I was called the nurse, a uh, convalescent home, nursing home called and said, hey, you know, this person is a member of your church. They're near death. They've asked that you come. And I came and I was new in my career. I was like, what do I do? You know, besides just sit there and kind of bear witness to what's about to happen. And uh, I found this prayer. And uh, we said it together. And dang, if the woman didn't rally. <laughs> uh, it was almost as if the reality of the moment had kind of overcome, uh, had nothing to do with me there. So I'll just make that very clear. Um, but the saying of this prayer kind of caused this person to perhaps gain a strength that she didn't have in the moment before. I'm sorry to interrupt you. And is she still with us? No, she is not. Oh, well, that, 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 that would have been fairness, a heck of a rally. Yeah, that would have been a heck of a rally because that was uh, quite a while ago. In the United Methodist tradition, we have prayers that are offered at, uh, with the dying and then a prayer that is traditionally offered right after they pass. And then very consistent then with, I think, my peers, uh, family hours of wake, kind of things you can do during a, uh, a wake or a visitation, which is I've had to adjust my verbiage in New England. It's common to call it a wake in New England. Visitation is what I grew up with in the Midwest. And then preparations for a funeral, funerary rite or service. But I, I, I will say, and this maybe is a plea to listeners, I would echo what Reverend Doreen said um, most people don't realize clergy are trained in dealing with and helping families and the people who are dying through this process. And you very clearly do not have to have a clergy person present when death is imminent, but I would argue that it is helpful. Uh, and even if we don't say anything, just to be there to help be another set of ears and to help with the grieving process whether you're a part of a house of worship or not, I would encourage you to to reach out because the emotions that happen when death is near 
uh, are real and hard and uh, to have someone to walk beside you in that moment is important. And certainly for me, and I'm guessing for Jacob also, uh, you don't have to be a member of my congregation to call on me f- to be part of anything. Yeah. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing that so that people do know and that they can reach out to anyone here. Mm-hmm. Um, Rabbi Tom. And also anybody who is Jewish and is uh, dealing with this Feel free to get hold of me. The uh, when I was thinking about the rabbinate, I spoke with the rabbi and asked what was the most important, uh, what was the the part about it they liked the best, and they said funeral. I said something like what, and they said look, wedding, baby naming, bar mitzvah, they're all gonna have a good time. You're not that important. At a funeral, you've got some training that can help them on something they don't know how to do. And I think that's true. I think most people shouldn't have training at this, but, you know, we do. So let me talk about a little bit about some of the rituals of death in Judaism. You start, let me give an image for those who are fans of old movies, those pictures that they often had in movies where you could see the uh, elevator going up. And the um, there was a dial that started on the left went up to the middle and down over to the right, okay? So picture that image, and the left is the focus on the person who is dying or has died, and the right is the focus on those who remain. Jewish ritual moves pretty much like that elevator from complete focus on the person who is dying to greater and greater focus on those who have left behind. And so as the person is dying, there's a tradition of saying... Uh, a, essentially a confession for the dead. Uh, and you can say it on their behalf. Anyone can do this. Uh, and uh, then, but you're supposed to stay with them. There's supposed to be someone with them as they're leaving this world, as they're moving on to the, to the next phase of their lives, of their existence. And you say, as I mentioned last time, the Shema, the prayer of, that says, Hero Israel, the Eternal is our God, the Eternal is one. And then after they die, the tradition is to say words that translate, blessed is the righteous judge, which is a recognition that life and death are all part of God's plan. So from the time the person has died until they're actually laid to rest, Jewish tradition is that they have not complete, they're still with us. And one teacher referred to this as being sort of the person with the most significant disability in the world. And so you are there to take care of them, to help them get ready. And there's a tradition of having someone read psalms over them. The, the body is immediately covered and is kept covered, except in a particular circumstance, because we don't have a tradition of awake or visitation of seeing the, the body because it's regarded as if you're staring at somebody who can't really do anything and you know can't turn away. And so the... Tradition is the body is cleansed ritually and prepared, is buried, Jewish tradition says, in a, a simple shroud, a simple box, is so as to avoid people having to go bankrupt on uh, funerals. Uh, and that goes back, you know, 2,000 years, is that tradition. So the uh, while um, we're waiting for the person to be buried, and burial traditionally happens very quickly in Judaism because you don't want the person to be lingering in that intermediate state. 
So essentially, as soon as the family can get there, as soon as the people from out of town can get there, you have the funeral. So it's really fairly quick. And I'll meet with the family. They'll share their stories. We'll decide who's going to speak, all that. At the funeral, there's a funeral, a grave, there's a funeral typically either at a funeral parlor or synagogue or just at gravesite, but there's also gravesite service, and the body is placed into the earth. And it is when the body is in the earth, that's really when that elevator needle is about the middle. At that point, you're, from then on, you're really focused more on the family. Before that, it's the majority is still on the person who's died. The eulogy is meant as, a, as praise for the person who's died. Specifically, it's about praise. It's about talking about their good points. And um, the, once the, and the, then it ends with placing earth on the casket um, out of a tradition that says that you do lots of things for people. But this is one that there is no way the person who you're doing it for can repay you. So you have no ulterior motives. You're doing it out of sheer love for them. It's, it's regarded as, as a sort of the highest form of uh, obligation, one that you do just because you care. You then head off and then you have family gathers together and guests and others, whoever, traditionally for a period of seven days called Shiva, which means seven. And during that time, the family is not supposed to leave the house. People are supposed to come. There's no, they, they just show up at the house, typically bring food. Services are held there because the family can't leave. And if they're supposed to be going to services, they hold them there for them. We don't always do it seven days anymore, but that's the tradition. And uh, then for the first 30 days, you're in mourning for whoever has died and you're supposed to remember them each day. And then after that, if it is apparent, you're supposed to remember them each day for a year, uh, saying their names. And then after that, traditionally, each year on the anniversaries of their death, called Yartzeit in Hebrew, and then about four times a year at special occasions, and those are the times when you can do things like visiting the cemetery and all. You're not supposed to visit the cemetery too much. There's a sense that, again, the goal is to get you back into life. And so basically the ritual, and by that point, of course, the uh, elevator needle is switched completely to those who are left behind. As I was listening to all three of you speak, I had a question, and it's because I've kind of seen it. Have you seen more of a change, and probably this is more for Doreen and Jacob, to what people are calling celebrations of life as opposed to funerals uh, since the pandemic? Because obviously the first however many, six, nine months, you couldn't have either. Are you seeing any kind of change to them not so in in the catholic church it's normally three days or four days after the passing you have the funeral uh and then the burial a lot of times from people i know they're doing the burial but they're not having a funeral service where all these people come until the summer or something like that or is that just in my little world that I live in? I don't know if it's since COVID. Um, as long as I've been a pastor, which is about 14 years now, there's been memorial service rather than funeral. And especially where 
more people seem to be doing cremation rather than mm. burial, and that allows that time because there's not even a burial. There's there's the cremains that may or may not be buried, but often aren't. And so it's about. I mean, I know when my own dad died. Um, we waited 12 days for the memorial service so that the grandchildren could come from the various places they had been traveling to. And for me, that was really hard. I didn't mm. know quite what to do with myself, this unfinished, am I grieving? Do I take the whole 12 days off? Do I go back to what, what am I doing? It felt very unfinished. So, And, and again, I've my children's grandparents it went months, and then it's with their grandfather. They just never did anything at all. So I, I think... There's a risk in in delaying things that it becomes less important and and leaves people, I think, at loose ends. But I do see that. I think in my career, the biggest there there has been that change. But I think there's also massive regional differences in the rituals and customs surrounding death. So, for instance, where I initially served in Indiana, um, and you know, going back for funerals for my family, the the visitations, we don't call them wakes, the visitations typically are very long. So say from 2 p.m. to 8 p.m. And it is the whole community comes out and food, much like sitting Shiva, food is brought to the funeral home in abundance. <laughs> wow. And you, there is a, a room set aside for the entire family and you, they go and eat, and that's the place you go. And then people are coming in and out of the funeral parlor. The casket's typically open and a big deal. Uh, and then a typical kind of funeral service the next day. One of the major shifts I had to get used to in coming to New England is it's not terribly uncommon, at least in Protestant traditions. I'm not, I can't speak to Catholic tradition or any other, but where the, the wake and the funeral are on the same day. So maybe there's a short two-hour wake, and then the funeral service happens at the end of it if, and this gets to your question, Jay, if there's even a funeral service. Uh, within our tradition, we demark the different names based on kind of the, uh, this is going to sound a little cold, but the state of the body. So if a, if a casket is present, we would call that a funeral service. Uh, if there are cremains present where you can't actually view the body or there's no remains present at all, we'd call that a memorial service or a celebration of life. So that would be the demarcation of how you define the ritual aside then from time as well, which also depends on kind of how the person is present. Cremation does exist in Judaism. Traditionally, it was very frowned on. It was not something that we did for any number of reasons, um, partially a sense that the this this that honoring the body meant letting it decay on its own and not being nothing forced like the ovens. The other part, of course, is for those who have Holocaust memories. It's it's got a bad reputation, but it is growing. It's growing here. It's growing in Israel. Cremation is there, and we do them. Um, people do them. You know, it's interesting. The, the, nonetheless, the funerals are usually fairly run at about the same timetable. People aren't don't wait a long time. Since there is no official place for cremation, there's no formal name for something involving <laughs> cremation. We just do it, but we call it a funeral anyway. And I, I want to talk for a minute about the celebration of life because we don't have a specific name for it. That term isn't really something in Judaism. And yet 
you know, a number of families. So they, they want this funeral to feel much more like a celebration of life. And I'm, I have to say, it, I'm, I'm going to be curmudgeonly on this one. I, I'm not quite sure what that means. I mean, as I say, our funerals do celebrate the person's life, but it feels to me... Maybe I'm, again, I'm willing to be, risk being judgy here, but it seems to me that can also be a way of saying, I don't want to think about, I want to think about happy thoughts, not sad thoughts. And I think that's problematic because sadness and grief are part of our lives. And we, in our larger society, are always told, don't be sad, don't cry, don't grieve. Well, there are things that are sad and deserve grief, and that's part of life, and we need to make space for it, and people need to be allowed to feel lousy at a time when you should feel lousy. The uh, So if someone were to look in our worship resources in the United Methodist Church, they would not find a funeral rite. It does not exist. Instead, what it's, it's not, they don't use the word or term funeral, they use the, they call the service a service of death and resurrection. Mm -hmm. This actually gets very much to what Rabbi Tom is talking about. Uh, And the idea is they wanted a generic term knowing that the ritual happens in a variety of contexts, person present, not coffin, cremains, whatever. And actually, I I wanted to share this because this is in the, the rubric at the beginning, kind of describing the service. And so it says that they they say the service of death and resurrection was intentionally selected as being appropriate to regardless of the situation. And then it says this, because that title clearly expresses the twofold nature of what is supposed to be done. That is, the facts of death and bereavement are honestly faced, and the gospel of resurrection is celebrated in the context of God's baptismal covenant with us in Christ. Again, much to what Rabbi Tom is talking about. We want to move on to the kind of good, happy thoughts. But there is a very important place for recognizing what has happened. And if you don't, if you don't recognize the reality of what's happened, the human mind can really play some tricks and make one feel pretty awful for a long time. I think there is a benefit to facing the grief. You can feel crappy for a very long time, but the reality is without facing that grief right up front, you actually prolong it. Mm -hmm. You prolong the grief, Mm -hmm. and it doesn't allow you to move on. I also brought my book of worship, and, and our service is called The Order of Thanksgiving for One Who Has Died. And the description says, the service recognizes both the pain and sorrow of the separation that accompanies death and the hope and joy of the promises of God to those who die and are raised in Jesus Christ. So again, really looking at the feeling the grief, feeling the loss. In your services, would you say that the, the scriptural readings that you have, the music literature that is sung or played contributes and helps with the healing of those present? Are there set readings that happen in your faith tradition? For us, for my tradition, I would say sort of. Oh. (laughs) Suggested readings, Mm -hmm. Ah. kind of along a theme. Mm -hmm. One of the adaptations that I have made in our previous episode, we talked about high and low church rituals. Uh, one of the adaptations from a, from the low church that I was brought up in that I have kept is a reading of the obituary. 
uh, or an adaptation of the reading of the obituary. And one of the things that I think that helps with is it allows the remembrance, but then very matter-of-factly says, on such-and-such date, so-and-so died. The ability just to verbalize that into the group of people, they all know it, but they do need to hear it again. This historical event happened, the person died, I think helps set that tenor in addition to the scriptural readings and the music to acknowledge the fact that has happened. So our ritual, we start, funeral service will start with some readings of psalms and prayers. Um, If there is a cantor present, they may chant one of those. We almost invariably will do. Then um, the eulogy will be given. Um, Typically I'll say something, sometimes family members as well, no requirement for them to. Um, And then we have the 23rd Psalm is usually read because it's a it's about faith and, and belief that you know, we'll survive after death. Only, do you have to read it in the King James Version, uh, I Actually, oddly <laughs> enough, yes. I, I do it in Hebrew, and then I invariably have everyone join in in the, that translation. It's the only one they ever know. If I read a more modern translation, they'll say, what? <laughs> it's back to our old conversation about ritual and... and uh, you that's, know, what, and, that's what you were looking for, right, Pandora, yeah. when you asked that question? Well, so yeah. well no, I, I just think that there are things like yes. that. But, yeah. But it's it's very hard. I mean, you know, the, the, the scholars all say it's a terrible translation, but you're stuck with it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, the then we have um, a prayer specifically for the dead, uh, uh, God full of compassion, Hebrew El Male Rachamim, which is chanted. The uh, funeral service ends at the gravesite. There's some more prayer, some more psalms and the like that are read, but the it ends with the Kaddish. Kaddish is a, um, from the Hebrew word meaning holy, is essentially a praise of God. It's a doxology. But it is, for historical reasons, a particular Kaddish has gotten associated with death. And so once the body is buried, you say the Kaddish, and then every time thereafter when you're remembering the person, you say the Kaddish. So that's sort of the core ritual things. So, yes, like Jacob, there's a book of worship has certain things they recommend, but always I work with the family, what, what's, what's important to them. And then usually as part of the service, so there's various readings, some of them scripture, some poem, or whatever it is. But I always say I'm going to base my eulogy or my reflection on a piece of scripture, and I will choose that for myself based on what I've heard the family talking about. Um, so it might be the Ecclesiastes is a time for every purpose under heaven, or it might be from Revelation. There's a time to come when every every tear will be wiped from every eye, or it might be First uh, Corinthians, right? Now we see through a mirror dimly, then we will see more fully. So it, it depends on a lot of the feel I get for the, the person who's died and for the family and what they need. Uh, songs are interesting. When the service happens in a funeral home, I will work with the family and whatever they want pretty much I'll try to incorporate. If it's in the church, there are songs I would say no to. Like someone once wanted the song Imagine, 
by John Lennon, where it says, imagine no religion. And to me, like that, you don't sing that in church. So I will discourage that, say maybe you can play that at the reception or something like that. So I just I just don't want any music that, that disrespects religious thought or tradition in the sanctuary. But otherwise, it doesn't have to be a hymn, although, again, people... In a time of grief, it's hard for them to make decisions and know what they want, and so they appreciate guidance, and there are certain hymns that I think offer comfort or promise or hope that I can recommend. Yeah. Which that brings up yes. an important conversation just, again, to be had for the listeners mm-hmm. to say, if you, it is easier on the people who remain after you die if you've thought about your own death. Mm-hmm. Again, that's some of the training that clergy have received in terms of let's talk about what you you know with the person who's still alive, what would best honor your life and what what are your what do you hope how do you hope people will remember you? what do you want sung? what do you want read? Those kind of conversations uh, are good to have early rather than uh, which is still okay to do it this way, but rather than kind of forcing people who are grieving and have a flood of emotions to try and think of those things, it is very helpful to do it early. Let me talk about one other thing that brings to mind about uh, advice for people as they move on with their lives. There's a Jewish uh, concept called an ethical will. So everybody always makes sure if you're thoughtful to leave a will to, to dispose of your property after you die. Uh, The idea of an ethical will says you also make a kind of testament. This is what I hope I'm giving to those who are after me. I want you to have this thought, this approach, this thing I've learned from life. Uh, You know, I don't think you have to be Jewish to draft one of these. You draft them and then, you know, uh, you set it aside, give it to someone uh, trusted, and uh, after you die, this is given to your descendants as a memory from you. You know, nowadays, of course, we can record it. Uh, um, it doesn't have to be physically written. It can be, uh, you know, uh, uh, recorded on video and you can have it available. Um, I, I, just something for people to think about. I like that. I, I'm not familiar with the concept of an ethical will, but if you have that time and the thought and reflection, like you mm-hmm. said, it... it it really sounds uh, fascinating. I've thought think? about the video part of it, and more to haunt people would be my goal. <laughs> I would like it sent to certain people just to, so all of a sudden, when they're least expecting it, there's me. But no, I, I do, you hear, shouldn't say you, I've heard more people and, and friends of mine have talked about leaving people don't write letters like they used to but doing videos for their kids their loved ones or so they always have something to look back on and i i think it's the same thing with you talking about the ethical will people maybe feel like they have a little more control over something in reality they have very little control over i think in a lot of instances i was looking through Again, another incredible outline that we've got. There are a couple of questions that it says to get some people thinking. And one of them is the expense of funerals. Talks about that, added expense about using a house of worship, clergy, so on. 
What, how does, what do you, each of you folks do? How does that work? Because I'm sure that's a question on people's minds, but how do you ask it? In our congregation, if you are a member of the congregation, my services are included. If you are not a member of the congregation, there's an organization called the Massachusetts Board of Rabbis, which sets a fee for rabbis for officiating at funerals, a fee for officiating at a funeral just at the gravesite, a higher fee for officiating at a funeral at a funeral home or synagogue, and then at the gravesite, and, and an even higher fee if you have to travel really long distances for the funeral. Uh, but neither of them are, none of them, I think, are excessive, but they're all fees that are set, and so I don't really have to have that conversation. Uh, the funeral home typically will have it with people. If they ask me, I tell them this is the fee, and that's what I'm charging because I just do that. Uh, you know, which is essentially a, a compensation for the time that I right. take. Uh, it makes yeah. sense. Um, totally. If yeah. people, our congregation doesn't really have space for to hold funerals, but I've been at other congregations where if an, someone who's not a member comes in, they you know need to rent the space and they pay, again, a certain amount just to do that. As to the expenses of funerals, I, I strongly urge people that in Jewish tradition, you don't have to buy the really fancy casket. And indeed, the big fancy ones that are never going to decay violate Jewish tradition. You're not supposed to have those. Plain pine box is more than fine, and I've been at any number of Jewish funerals of people with a great deal of money who've been buried in a plain pine box because of that. And so I you know, advise people it's not about trying to go bankrupt. You know, obviously you can now get caskets from, uh, you know, Costco and the like and work that out with the funeral home. There are all kinds of things you can learn how to do and get on the Internet. You'll find some way to keep your money down and you'll figure that out. I personally am not excited about keeping a, a casket in my garage for 20 years, but there are people who do that. <laughs> I would say for us, there's um, for a funeral, whether one's a member or not, the use of the facility is a typically no, there's no cost to that whatsoever, m member or, or otherwise. Do often encourage families to think about some sort of donation, donation. but yeah. that's never a prerequisite for use of the facility. In terms of for myself, it is a conversation I wish I didn't have to have with people, to be quite honest, because it always makes me a little uncomfortable. Sure. And every funeral home is very different in their suggested fees for, for clergy. So I would typically just defer to the funeral home for my ser for my professional services for the funeral. Um, but if there's ever a hiccup with that or they say, hey, I want to pay something different from the funeral home, I typically do not turn them down for that. Not to jump the gun on Doreen because I don't know how she handles the that for her, but I do know every church is different and some clergy will deny all fees and or just pass it through to the to the congregation i i will say the way i perceive of that is is it is compensation for my time with the mm -hmm. family and my preparations for the funeral and so for you, me it does come does come directly to me you, you are all professionals you know not only is it a calling it's your career and we all get paid for what we do 
Yes, what they what they said. Uh, usually, when it's a funeral home is involved, we'll just whatever the funeral incorporates is their compensation for me. I accept gratefully. For members, I ask the funeral home to drop that fee for me. And I'm not sure what Franklin Federated's policy is for non-members using the church. I suspect there's a fee, a small fee for that, but again, negotiable as is needed. The thing it's listed after I find extremely interesting in it. It says, does your tradition allow you to perform funerary rituals for persons who are not part of your particular tradition? Yeah? So it's it's a little more complicated in Judaism because, of course, it isn't just a tradition. It's like you're either Jewish or you're not. Correct. Uh, and so I have never been asked to perform a funeral for someone who isn't Jewish. I suspect if that came up and there was a particular reason why I was the person who was asked, I would come up with some way to do this. Mm. Uh, but I'm not the person they're going to typically call for those things. Well, in my tradition, we're allowed to. It's in our book of worship for rituals for non-Christians. Right. But it still follows typically the rubric. Now, I'm able to adapt that however I see fit for the situation. And Um, it's not likely that we'll get a request from someone from a different religious tradition. It's more the spiritual but not religious or those mm. with no religious affiliation. Right. It's not like I'd be asked to do a a Muslim funeral or a Buddhist funeral. Right. And from from me, this is where, again, you get to the place Mm -hmm. where Judaism is a slightly unusual Mm -hmm. fit in in the way we think about things in America because the idea of a Jew who is spiritual but not religious, from the Jewish perspective, you're still Jewish. So even if you have no interest in God, so if you're not religious, if you're Jewish, you're Jewish. And so they, what I do with the Jewish funeral for them, sure, because they're Jewish. By contrast, someone who has no connection to Judaism, either as a religion or a, you know, as their ethnicity, is not likely to be contacting me. Someone spiritual but not religious who has no connection to Judaism is just not going to call me. So that's why it's a little different. Whereas my colleagues here, you know, someone whose family had a Christian tradition, they themselves are no longer part of it, they might well get called by those folks. Right. But to circle back, I do think it is worth just pointing out that Uh, back to the cost and whether or not religious or otherwise, the cost is basically a net zero to have it at a house of worship or not, because the funeral home is going to charge you to use their space. Oh, right. Right. uh, So I think sometimes people think of having a clergy person or a house of worship involved is another layer of expense or hassle. And what I have found is it actually relieves a great deal of pressure because the house of worship can kind of come in and really help with the details in a way that a funeral home may not. Um, I'm biased, clearly, but encourage people to not just tune that out. Um, And then back to the most recent question, quite frankly, whether you are a part of a community of faith or not, it's worth thinking about. And I'll just say our social justice team did a uh, an environmental action series, and one of the topics we covered was green burial, which yes. is not uh, legal in Massachusetts at this point. But I'm really excited for that movement to grow, to think about different ways of handling yeah. the bodies. That's a really yes. interesting question. Yeah. yeah. So we're wrapping up? I think we are. I think we've had a good discussion about um, 
the rituals associated with death and with funerals and why they are important and how they can help not only the person who is dying, but also those who are there after the individual has passed. There are a variety of roles and a variety of ways to help and to care for that, for all involved. And as we do, we always kind of bring the uh, conversation to a nice close through a thoughtful reflection and closing thoughts. And today, Reverend Doreen is going to lead us in that. Thank you. So, yes, I think that clergy have something to offer, particularly in terms of holding space, holding space for the dying, those who are dying and those for for who are grieving, right? That we bring a groundedness in our own trust in God, our sense that all phases of life has richness and meaning. Maybe there's a sense that there's something more to come, or maybe there's just this belief that there's been a fulfillment of purpose in this world. And, And I think that provides a sacred container in which we can listen to fears and anger and guilt and grief. And then we can create rituals that will incorporate responses to those things like assurance and comfort, forgiveness and hope. And I think religious rituals around death can also point us to a deep well of faith that will sustain us in our grief, both the acute grief as we navigate a whole new world without our loved one, or again, the continual waves of grief that will come upon us in unexpected or expected times, um, even after we found our footing. And sometimes it's the community that will carry us through, but sometimes we're alone or feel alone, and we can reach out to God, right, to the God who will hear our cries, receive our rage, and touch our wounds. Uh, and this morning there was in our United Church of Christ daily devotional. This is called Space for Grief by Rachel Hackenberg. And she uses a passage from Genesis in which Sarah died. And Abraham said to the Hittites, I am a stranger residing among you. Give me property for a price so that I may bury my dead. And Hittite answered, I give you the field and the cave that is in it. Bury your dead. And Rachel writes, The emotion of grief needs physical space, I've learned. It's why centuries are ideal for finding solace, those wide-open spaces where the sun can bear witness to pain, the quiet enshrined places where shadows provide comfort for tears, the unmarked favorite spaces where memories paint the landscape with love. It's why Abraham desired space to bury Sarah, even in a land where he and his family lived as foreigners. With the purchase of a field and a cave, Abraham guaranteed a spatial touchstone for generations to come, where Sarah could be remembered, where family stories could be retold, where those stories could be wrestled with and lamented, where the frailty of human existence could find perspective alongside ageless stone and seasonal harvest. Grief needs space that has touchstones, so its chasms do not swallow all of life. Grief needs space where it can go for peace, so its tensions can be stretched and uncoiled from the body. Grief needs space that is rich in love, so its heart does not become hardened. This is true not only of grief that follows the death of a loved one, but also of grief that follows change, and grief that follows disappointment, and grief that follows endings. The spirit needs touchstones. The body needs peace. The heart needs love. With these three, we can grieve well. 
with these three, we can bury our dead. A very uh, thoughtful and calming way to end this discussion. Thank you very much, Reverend Doreen. And, and it is, there's so much more we could cover. It's hard to cover it, and, and I'm sure we will at some point. You know, from everything I was thinking about, we're talking about expenses to the whole idea of a funeral and everything that happens in the dying pro- It It is such a huge topic. So I, I thank the three of you for really the time and effort and the thought uh, that has gone into it. And I, I think that we in this room and everyone who listens to the podcast learned. There's always, you know, we learned about the faith. We learned about why it's important to think about it, why it's important to explore some of these things. And um, we also address some of the nuts and bolts of the cost of a funeral, which oftentimes we may be afraid to ask. So it was good to just have it out there in a very easy way. Yeah. Uh, once again, I would like to thank, on behalf of Jay Harrigan and myself, Reverend Doreen Auten, Pastor Jacob Yunker, and Rabbi Tom Alpert for being our faith leaders and leading this discussion and thoughtful unpacking of the rituals associated with death. Uh, we thank you, Keith, for always keeping us going and uh, making it possible for others to hear this conversation. And we thank Pete Passiano and Franklin Radio and TV for this location. Thank you.